good morning. How is everybody doing? Yeah, and a little quiet out there today, but I get it. It's cold outside. Everything slows down, right? We're like amphibious. Our blood slows down, and we just kind of tuck in. But it's warm in here, so we can warm up a little bit. Um, if you are new here, my name is Mary Birch, and I am one of the assisting pastors here at LifeSpring. I am married to Pastor Dan Birch for 18 years as of last month. Woo-hoo. Uh, we have three kids. We have two girls that are normally running around here Sunday mornings, but they are both homesick. And then we have a 22-year-old uh, son who is over living his best life in Spokane right now. So if you get to see him, it's like a special sighting when he comes home. Um, but if I haven't met you yet, I would love to say hi and meet you. And Dan and I will be back at the Welcome Center after service. So please come by, say hi, and let us meet you. Um, but if you are not new here... You will know that um, when I bring the message, that I also bring with me some really amazing dad jokes. So, without further ado, uh, let's have a little chuckle together. I'm Joe Henderson's not here, and I'm so sad because he is my biggest dad joke laugher. So, you guys are going to have to be extra vigorous in your appreciation this morning. So, okay, how does the moon cut his hair? Eclipse it. That one's fun because I get to do a British accent. Eclipse it. Uh, What do you call an elephant that doesn't matter? He is a relevant. That's right. That's a good one. Irrelevant. Uh, Every morning I announce to my family that I'm going to go out on a run or on a jog, and I don't do it because it's a running joke. Thank you. Um, Just out of curiosity, anybody know who was the shortest man in the Bible? No. You can't say that because I told this joke to Addie. She goes, Pastor Joe told us that joke last week. <laughs> you stole my thunder. Who is the shortest man in the Bible? Nehemiah. <laughs> Nehemiah. I was so excited about that joke because I'm like, that's the best transition into my message ever. Because speaking of Nehemiah, guys, we are closing up Ezra and Nehemiah today. Can you believe it? We did it. We did it. How many weeks has this series been? 19. (laughs) It's been a few. It's been a few weeks. But what I'd like to do this morning is I just want to do a really quick recap of where we've been up until today. Um, And then we're going to read the end of the book together. And then I have some practical applications that I think we can all take home with us today um, as we close this out. But let's pray together and let's just get our hearts ready to receive the word. So, Lord, I do just thank you for these books. Lord, I thank you for everything that you have um, showed us that we can learn from these books in the last weeks. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of those that have given your word to the church. Lord, I just pray this morning that as we close it out, that this message would be just as powerful and effective as the ones that went before it. Prepare our hearts, Lord, that these uh, things would go down deep. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to do a really quick recap. I can do this holding the pen and the mic. So in Ezra, we kind of had a couple of different things here. So the first book, we had um, the Israelites were finally getting to return to Jerusalem, right? The king was like, you guys can go back. And so this guy named Zerubbabel comes in, and he brings the Israelites back to Jerusalem. And they build the, what do they build? They build the temple. They build the start with the altar, and then they build the temple. 
But then um, at the end of that chapter, uh, it's kind of anticlimactic because they build the temple, but then some of the old guys who were around for the temple before were like, oh, well, you should have seen the old one. It was pretty great. This one's all right. And then also um, Zerubbabel gets pretty mad because it turns out there's some intermarrying that's been happening, right? And so he sends a lot of people out and... Oh, that, I'm so sorry. That was my cough drop. Um, and so... <laughs> He says, so he <laughs> didn't break my tooth. Uh, so he, uh, so we send some people out, and that's actually chapter ten. Uh, they decide that they're going to follow the Torah again, and then there's that intermarrying thing, and he's like, "We can't do that." And then there's a divorce decree, and ends kind of on a sad note. And then we get into Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter one through seven. What are they rebuilding? What is Nehemiah rebuilding? He's rebuilding the wall. That's pretty exciting, right? Because you're building the wall, and that's really cool, and they have a celebration. But then, you know, it turns out they're struggling again, and there's all these guys that show up, and they want to help rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah's like, no, you got to go back, even though that's not really what God said. And so that one kind of ends on a downer. And then we get over here, 8 through 12. Guess what? The walls are complete. This is really good. Super exciting. Yay. Everything's going well. And we ended here last week with Pastor Jesse, and now we're going to go into chapter 13. 12 and 13. There's no 14. Thank you. That's why you need a spouse. Okay. Okay. So let's see. All right, chapter 12. This is where we're beginning. Chapter 12 begins with a list of the genealogy of the priests and Levites that returned with Zerubbabel back here. He's listing them all out. And they were now serving in the temple. We're not going to read through that list. I would say it's mostly for time's sake, but I have a feeling I'm afraid that I would accidentally swear while I'm trying to pronounce all these names, and that would not be good. So we're going to read... Uh, After we read the list, we go down to verse 27, which is where the fun begins because they are about to dedicate the temple wall, the wall around Jerusalem that has finally been completed because they are about to have a party people. So let's start reading here. Verse 27 says, for the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving, and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Verse 31 says, I, Nehemiah, led the leaders of Judah to the top of the wall, and I organized two large choirs to give thanks. One of the choirs proceeded southward along the top of the wall to the dung gate. He then goes on to name some of those that were in the procession, as well as describing the route they took. And then 38 says, the second choir giving thanks went northward around the other way to meet them. He says, I followed followed them together with the other half of the people along the top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. So as a visual this morning, for you guys to get an idea of what's happening here, I'm going to divide the church in half, and you guys are going to walk this way around the church. I'm not going to do that. Oh, Dan was ready. He's ready. But you get the idea. There's two big choirs, and they are going, one's going one way, one's going the other. They're about to meet in the middle. 
And in verse 40, it says, The two choirs that were giving thanks then proceeded to the temple of God, where they took their places. And so did I, together with the group of leaders who were with me. Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day. For God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and children also participated in the celebration. And the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. So do you think Nehemiah wants us to understand that this was actually a really amazing day? There's a lot of joy in that verse. We could call this maybe a mountaintop experience for the Israelites. They're having a really, really, really good season here. They're on the uptick. They just had an incredible time of corporate repentance here in verse, uh, chapters 8 through 11. And then they had a revival and a recommitment to following the Torah. Do you guys remember that? Do you remember the three things that they said that they were going to commit to at the end of chapter 10? Well, I'm going to write them down for you just in case you forgot. Okay. It says, we promise in verse 30, we promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not to let our sons marry their daughters. So there was not supposed to be any intermarriage. That's what they swore to. Second thing, we also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or on any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. And every seventh year, we will let our land rest. So they were committing to keeping the Sabbath holy. Now, the third one, verse 32, in addition, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce of silver for the care of the temple of our God. We promise together not to neglect the temple of God. All right, those are the three things they swore solemnly that they would not do. So as we finish reading chapter 12, we see uh, lists out that they're continuing to put into place all of the ways God had instructed them to run the temple. And they're going to provide for all the ones that are working in the temple and the people. They're working in there for them. This is good. This is good. Again, you know, we're, we're heading up. This is amazing. And so far, they're honoring their word feels like this is a really great place to, uh, to end, don't you think? We should just end it right here. Guess what? Guess what? There's one more chapter. <laughs> Given the pattern that we've seen, how many of you think that we're going to continue on our upward trend versus maybe not so much? Probably not, but we'll see. We'll see. You know what? The Bible is all about hope. All about hope. Okay, well, let's start in verse 4 of chapter 13. It says, uh, before this happened, Eliashib, the priest who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storeroom and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. So that sounds a little bit fishy to me. One of the leaders of the temple has allowed a leader in the community, which if... The name Tobiah rings a bell for you, and you've been following this series. It should because he is not a good dude. He's not a good guy. He's allowed this guy, this bad guy, to basically use a house, use the house of God for his own personal storage unit. Oh, but wait, there's more. 
Uh, it says the room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. Well, that's even worse. Because not only is he making some pretty shady moves by letting Tobiah use a room in the temple, but it's at the expense of all of the things that they were supposed to get from the people to make the temple run. It was supposed to be to keep it operating, including the tithes. And since there was nowhere now to put all of those tithes that went to provide for the Levites, the tithes stopped. And I love Nehemiah. Do you know what Nehemiah says in the next verse? Nehemiah is like, and just so you guys all know, I wasn't there when this was going down. I was not there. I was back in Jerusalem. I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. I asked permission to return. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw out all of Tobiah's belongings. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified. I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings, and the frankincense. But then he says, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food, so they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to work their fields. So now we can see the consequences of all those tithes stopping. The tithes were meant to provide for the Levites who were caring for and working in the temple. And now that they had to go out and work in the fields in order to live. And here Nehemiah's question in verse 11. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Uh-oh. Temple of God is being neglected. Didn't they just swear to not neglect the temple? So, so far, I guess we could say this is not going well. Go back down. But maybe it will get better. So let's read in verse 15. In those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. Does anybody recall what type of work was supposed to be done on the Sabbath? Zero work on the Sabbath. Zero work. He says, so I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. But some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem, they were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. And then they were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So this has gone from bad to worse. (laughs) And then Nehemiah gets mad again. He says, I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this way? I asked, wasn't it just this sort of thing your ancestors did? That caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us in our city. And now you're bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way. Okay, again, this is not going the right direction. They were doing so good, and then there's still more before we get to the end of the book. So let's continue reading. Verse 23 says, about the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them. I called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah is done with the Israelites. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. He says, wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing the sinful deed of acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? They married the foreign women. Well, might as well just finish out the book. 28 says, one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sanballat. Also, if you remember, not a good dude. So I banished him from my presence. Remember them, O my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and the Levites. And then he ends by saying, remember this in my favor, O God. Well, things got really bad. And then that's the end. The end of Nehemiah, you guys. Woo! What happened? What happened? <laughs> At the beginning of the chapter, everything was so good. They had rebuilt the temple and the walls, and the people were all coming back. They dedicated the structures. They dedicated themselves to the Lord once again with joy and fervor. But just yet a very short time later, everything they had worked so hard to put into place Everything they swore an oath to do, they had just systematically undone. What went wrong? Unfortunately, this pattern, it follows a pattern we see from the beginning of the establishment of Israel, right? Up until that time. God moves on behalf of his people. They swear to follow him and do for a while, but then they quickly fall into disobedience. They turn away from any covenant promises that they've made. Bad things happen. They cry out to God to save them, which he does, and then they start the cycle all over again. So when Nehemiah was away, Nehemiah was away, and and the people were all being naughty. Does anybody have any flashbacks to Exodus at that time? Remember when Moses went away for a little bit, and he came back? He's like, what are you doing? It's the same cycle. I think we can draw out of the ending here this point. The people of Israel had worked really hard to build a new temple and new walls, and a new commitment to follow the Torah. But what they ultimately needed, you guys, was they needed new hearts. The Bible talks over and over again about the people's hearts. Their hearts were either for him or their hearts were turned against him. This story, more than anything, highlights our inability to, on our own, Do the things we need to do in order to keep our relationship with God in right standing. The crazy cycle is just going to keep repeating until something happens. So the end of Nehemiah, is that meant to just leave us scratching our hearts or heads and thinking like, what was that all about? That escalated quickly. It's really sad that the people, you know, they couldn't keep their promises. They failed again. And you know what? If they keep failing, what does that mean for me? Is this just a really, really depressing story? Why is it in the Bible? Let's read Romans 15, 4 together. 
It's up on the screen. For everything, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Hope. So what is the hope here? I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Rather, the Bible is going to tell us. In Ezekiel chapter 32, it says, I, this is the Lord, will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The Lord says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you. There it is, church. That is our hope. And the hope isn't a what? Guess what? It's a who. It's who. And who's the who? It's Jesus. Did you know that everything in this book here, everything in this book, it's a unified story from beginning to end that points us always to Jesus. And the book of Nehemiah, as part of a larger story, more than anything, is screaming out their need and our need for a Savior. That we can never do it on our own, as resolute as we may be. As many plans, purposes, structures, strategies that we can come up with and put in place, it will always, always fall apart unless we have a new heart and a new spirit within us. Amen? Amen. All right, well, if you've said yes to Jesus, then you have received that new spirit, his spirit, and now you should be walking with and empowered by that spirit. What does Pastor Dan always say? There is no Christian life outside the spirit-led life. That's right. If we're not continuously partnering with him and being moved by his voice, his leading, and his conviction, and being filled with his power and his presence, we are going to find ourselves stuck in the same cycle as the Israelites. But what is so awesome is that we get the opportunity to be transformed. Everybody say transformed. Transformed from our old stuck sin natured self into a person that has a radically changed heart, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Every day, we get to be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Hallelujah. More like him. If we are walking with Jesus, if we have his spirit living within us, then we should be daily looking, acting, and thinking more and more like him. Our walk, people say our walk with Jesus, but you know, as spirit-filled believers, our walk is a transformational walk from glory, thank you Jesus, for the glory of salvation, to glory, where we get to evermore be increasingly more like our Father. Okay, with all of that being said, so now I think we can go back and look at some ways the Israelites perhaps misplaced their efforts in trying to follow God and put them in something else in hopes to kind of keep their joy and their fervor for him going. We can apply these to our own lives as well because still today, they can keep us from experiencing all the life the Lord has for us. But I want you to keep in mind that we now have the Holy Spirit residing within us, and that is the game changer of game changers. 
So before I go into those, first I want to say there's definitely value in all four of these things that I'm going to bring up today. In fact, um, all four are needed and are a vital part of our spirit-filled Christian lives. They can certainly be the fuel on top of our fire, but if we are dependent on any of these things to be our fire, we're barking up the wrong tree. So what I want you to take away with you today, what I want us to take home is four things. Our personal commitment to follow Jesus on our transformational walk with him from glory to glory cannot depend on, and number one is experiences. The Israelite people just had a revival right before this. They had an amazing time of corporate repentance and recommitment to the Lord to follow his laws. They had a party of parties to commemorate God's faithfulness in restoring their home, their temple, and their city. It was a time of great joy. Do you guys remember that? How many times they said joy in that passage? Praise God for that. But like they did, are we, church, riding a wave of that one time God moved in that one service five 10 or 20 years ago and just trying to make it to the next one so we can get lit on fire once again? Does our walk with Jesus rise and fall based of how, off of how much the spirit fell or how many tingles you got during a service? So that's number one. We cannot be dependent on experiences. Number two, we cannot be dependent on leadership. Praise the Lord for amazing leaders. Praise the Lord for pastors Dan and Jesse. Amen. We have healthy, faithful, spirit-filled leaders here, leaders here at LifeSpring. Godly leaders are here to help us grow. It's scriptural. Nehemiah was an amazing leader. But just like we read today, when Nehemiah left for a while, everyone fell apart. They were way too dependent on Nehemiah being the guy that was keeping everything together, keeping everyone accountable. Even the other leaders were depending on Nehemiah. The community was so dependent on any leader that when their top guys started to compromise and started making these changes, they did too. And it just brings to mind all of the people that we hear about that their faith is deconstructing because they were following the wrong person. Who are you following, LifeSpring? Are you following a pastor or that one guy on YouTube? Are you following the Lord? Are you depending on a good sermon from one of us on a Sunday morning to keep you going through the week? Or are you depending on the word of the Lord to be your daily bread, to guide you and to lead you? So experiences, leadership, number three, we cannot be dependent on others or our culture, people or our culture. This one's pretty simple. It's not anyone else's responsibility to make sure that you stay faithful to the word of the Lord. I'm going to say that again. It is not anyone else's responsibility to make sure that you stay faithful to the word of the Lord. The Israelites had all made this commitment together. They stood side by side by side, and they all together said, yes, we will. But just like our world still today, those around them slowly turned away from their yes, compromising the truth of the word and taking a different path. And when that happens, church... Will you stay committed? Will you follow what is right, though none go with you? Experiences, leadership, culture. And number four, we cannot be dependent upon ourselves. This one. 
We are so dependent on our own selves as humans. The Israelites were so resolute in their oath. This is what we are going to do. This is how we will do it this time. We still do this, right? Anybody make New Year's resolutions? We are resolute resolutions. We still make it. I I looked up a statistic. It's amazing how much, not much has changed in a couple thousand years since the Israelites. Research suggests that only 9% of Americans that make resolutions complete them. In fact, 23% of people quit their resolution by the end of the first week. And by the end of January, 43% are done. We're not very successful, by and large, when we try and do things of our own strength and ability. I really believe the Israelites thought that they could do it. I do. I believe they even wanted to. But just like us, their strength, desire, and want could only get them so far. What do we depend on to keep us going, to keep us walking forward on our transformational walk with Jesus? What does Second Peter 1.3 say? It says, By having amazing experiences, I have everything I need for living a godly life. Oh, wait. No. By having really good leaders to follow, I have everything I need for living a godly life. By having really good community, I have everything I need for living a godly life. Oh, you know what? By having really good resolve and self-will, I have everything I need to live a godly life. That's not what it says. What does it say? It says, by his divine power, God has given us everything that we need for living a godly life. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Nehemiah shows us that we needed a savior desperately. Those of you that are here today that don't know Jesus, you need a savior desperately. We can't do it on our own. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. But guess what? God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to do just that, to save us and to help us. And with the cross and the new covenant that ushered in with it, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to help us in every way, We who have said yes to him get to walk with him from the glory of our salvation into the glory of eternal life. Would you guys pray with me? Oh, Lord, we are so thankful for you. Lord, we're so thankful that you didn't leave us to have to try and figure it out on our own. Lord, that you didn't abandon us in our sin and our disobedience. And Lord, there was always a plan. There was always a plan to bring us back into relationship with you so we can be with you forever. Lord, would our resolve be to daily walk with you, to be daily filled with your spirit, to daily read your bread so that as we walk out this transformational glory-to-glory walk with you, that every day we are more and more like 
you. If there's anybody in here today and you have not said yes to Jesus and you're so tired of trying to figure it out on your own, it's just messy and as high as the highs are, the lows are just as low if not lower and you're ready to do it different, you're ready to do it with Jesus. If that's you, would you just pray this prayer with me this morning? Jesus, I can't do it. Apart from you, I'm lost. I need you to rescue me. I need you to save me. Today, I put my trust in you, and I say yes to following you all the days of my life. The all eyes closed and heads bowed. If that was anybody in this room this morning, would you just slip your hand up real quick so I can see and celebrate with you? Praise the Lord. Lord, would you help us remember this as we leave today? Let it not just be a Sunday morning message, but let it be a sustaining word straight from the heart of God that we cling to the rest of this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.